Hello and welcome to the exam hall. This is the podcast where every episode I sit down with a guest and we answer questions from what is known as the hardest exam in the world, the All Souls Fellowship exam. My name is Cherry and I will be your host. I am an ex-education professional, soon to be uni student, and I am currently very, very hot. It is hot in London and it's all that anyone can talk about. If you are returning, welcome back. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, hello, let me clue you in on what's going on. All Souls College Oxford is maybe the most prestigious and exclusive academic institution in the world. Applicants must sit for three-hour exams, two specialist papers and two general papers, which is where we will be drawing our questions from. To be eligible to apply, you must already hold an Oxford degree or be currently studying at postgraduate level there. However, here at the exam hall, we have no eligibility criteria apart from a pulse. No dead people, please. (laughs) Everyone is equal. Everyone is welcome here. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our guest for today's episode. (laughs) The (laughs) (laughs) The artist formerly known as the incomparable songstress using he, she, they pronouns interchangeably. It's Sam Smith. Woo. Woo. Here we go. <laughs> we wrote that intro beforehand. And I- yeah, it's a means of preparation. How are you doing today, Sam? Oh, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I have a coffee. You have a coffee? Yeah. Yeah. I was reading on the train. Well, what were you reading? I'm reading Jane, A Murder by Maggie Nelson. Ooh. Maggie Nelson's fantastic. Um, most famous for... Uh, like a memoir-ish book called The Argonauts. Oh, uh, yes, I've um, heard this. Which is, I haven't actually read. Um, and Bluets as well. Nice. Um, Enjoying it? Good book? It's very good. It's just got very dark because it's like, it's she's writing about um, the murder of her aunt through poetry. Oh. And like extracts from her aunt's journal and like diaries wow. and letters between people. So it's like, it's somewhat of like an epistolary kind of um, book in that it's like found writing, but it's also like in memory of her aunt and it's kind of a memoir. It's so good, but it got dark on the train and I was like, um, cool. That's that's always, I'm, I always worry that people are staring at me on the tube because when I'm reading something or like listening to a podcast, I can't, I'm so bad at like keeping a straight face. So I will be on the tube, like mouth open, gasping, hooting, yeah. being like, oh, no, oh yeah. my God. Yeah, I did what the a twist. Yeah, like I did the almost about to cry face, but I had to do it towards the window. Oh. I did the sort of, this is a podcast, I can't like, but, like <laughs> I'll do it for you. It's just like, it's like the, do you know what I mean? Like it's like the, oh, but in like the, oh, oh wow, that was really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's for fantastic. Sure. Well, Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank I'm so very, much. very happy to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Sam, tell me, what qualifications do you have to be here today? And we are using qualifications in a very liberal sense. Yep. That may be traditional qualifications, or it may be one time I was hit by a car. That's a valid qualification, as is a university degree. Quite. Okay, well, speaking of liberal, I am... Um, 
at the end of my second year going into my third year um, of a BA in liberal arts at King's College London. Stunning. Um, with a major in English. And I feel like I should contextualise what liberal arts is because it's generally not, actually, people generally don't have, like just don't know what it is. Um, which is fine because I had to explain it to my careers advisor at school. So like, do you know what I mean? I think it's very valid. Basically, liberal arts is kind of like the American curriculum where you do a major discipline, where you do like most of your studies there. So like half of my degrees in English. And then um, you can elect to do like a minor of like, oh, across the three years, I got enough credits in another discipline. And then you can study modules across arts and humanities. Not as in like painting, drawing, fashion arts, but as in like academically what is considered arts and humanities. So like I've done modules in geography, which is actually a social science. So that was a bad example to lead with. Um, <laughs> like world cinemas, classics, all that kind of stuff. So I'm quite qualified in the sense that um, one could say I am knowledgeable on several very niche areas. Multidisciplinary. Quite. It's, you contain multitudes. I contain multitudes. And also the, our favourite word in like liberal arts is interdisciplinary. It's an interdisciplinary study, which it is, because it's like, you know, between disciplines. But anyway, so yeah, just finished my second year of that. What else makes me qualified? Oh, um, I've been dancing since I was three. So at a moment's notice could do a time step. Um, <laughs> what else? Um, I don't know. Like I like reading. So yeah. Shout out to my A-level English class. I'm sure they're all listening. Shout out to Miss Struthers and Miss Green. The Miss Struthers is an amazing name. That's a good, like... She's just incredible. She's the reason why I'm currently at university. She's amazing. I hope she's listening. I hope she's gonna, listening. I'll send it to her. Oh my I'll gosh, send this please to her. do. Yeah. I have been meaning to email her actually, just give her an update. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of like what else I can like say that's qualified. Um, you're yeah. a theatre maker. You're I a am, creative. I am. I'm a London-based creative. Actually, I'm not London-based, but like... Epsom-based creative. Yeah, you're like Surrey-based creative. <laughs> Greenbelt-based creative. Period. <laughs> Greenbelt-based creative. That's so great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You recently directed a play that I didn't either heard it was really good. It was called Photograph. No, I heard mixed reviews. Um, <laughs> but you know, for context, for context, good listeners. Um, me and Cherry very recently worked together on Cherry's first full-length play, yeah. Photographs at the Barons Court Theatre, um, produced by the wonderful Burn Orange Theatre. Shout out to Burn Orange. Absolutely shout out. They're great. Um, absolutely fantastic. Um, it was a cursed production in so many ways and I feel like we shouldn't get into it but just know that like if you thought it could happen during a rehearsal process marry it did illness yep um, several no more than one illness multiple illnesses two confirmed illnesses one tonsillitis scare someone was nearly like trapped on the underground Oh, and also like People, a change in production team. Yep, change the production team. Change of changing cast. Changing cast four yep. days before the show. Yep. But it was, it was a good time. It was a very formative experience. I feel like yep. I wouldn't be on this podcast had we not been so... <laughs> Trauma know, bonded. Quite. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Well, Sam, I am very glad that you are here on this podcast. Thank you. Um, today's question comes from the 2005 General Paper 2. Mm-hmm. It is question 33, and it is, how appropriate... Is it to study English literature in isolation? Mm-hmm. When we were going through questions, I said this one and you instantly were like, that one. Yes, I did do that. Why Why does this question stick out to you? What appeals to you about it? Well, it's sort of, it's the entire point 
why I did liberal arts as opposed to just a pure English BA or even like an English, um, like a joint honours of like English yeah. and it would have been English and drama had I looked at them. But um, it's the entire reason why I did liberal arts because I didn't want to just study English literature in isolation. So if, you know, one could say in my personal experience, I have found that it is imperative not to study English literature. Not just appropriate. It's imperative. It's imperative. But my immediate reaction is, it's not that it's inappropriate, but I think it's more significant to study it out of isolation. Okay. So it's not an insular degree. But then I would also say that that about any degree. So it's not specific to English literature. I don't think that any subject should be studied in isolation. Interesting. It's a really interesting interestingly worded question yes it's not should english literature be studied in isolation it's how appropriate is it to study english literature in isolation so how are we measuring appropriate yeah because it also implies that it would be inappropriate to you know if if it's like how appropriate so the flip side of that would be how inappropriate is it which i which i think makes it sound really weird but yeah how how are we measuring appropriate well let me let me give you the uh, definition. If it's from Google, it's from the Oxford English Dictionary. It's from the OED. It is okay. I've had to cite Google definitions of what <laughs> it's from. This is from Oxford. That's an it Oxford is. approved yes. definition. So let me give you the Oxford approved yeah. definition. Appropriate adjective. Yeah. Suitable or proper in the circumstances. Suitable or proper in the circumstances. Well, suitable or proper. I don't know, that's just really weird. Is it suitable? I thought that that's just like a really dicky thing to say. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I would have worded the question, do you agree with studying English literature in isolation? But how appropriate just seems, seems like they have an agenda. It feels like one of those questions that's supposed to trip you up. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of like, in an exam paper, they're sort of banking on your immediate response being... How appropriate. Oh, it's very appropriate. (laughs) Or like, oh, no, I would never do that. That's my impression of people taking the All Saints College um, general paper to 2005. All All Souls. souls. What did I say? All Saints? Yeah. (laughs) That's a boy band, I think. (laughs) No, All Saints is that like really weird. It's a clothing brand. It's that clothing shop. And all the clothes are like shades of grey and beige and neutrals. And it's really horrid. But yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But I don't think, I think how appropriate implies an agenda and it feels like a very passive aggressive question mm. is it appropriate are you appropriate mary <laughs> <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah absolutely <laughs> that's, that's how i respond to that if i was asked in person if this was like an interview style exam i would be i don't know you'd, be, you'd, I don't you'd, find you'd that, send that energy back yeah, i'd be like i don't find this question appropriate how about that yeah what are your thoughts on that <laughs> sir madam other Wait, this, this is 2005 probably just sir yeah absolutely yeah women didn't exist until 2012 if not later really <laughs> yeah. i mean i still i've never met a woman so yeah i don't really believe they exist actually yeah no i very much believe in the binary of male or other <laughs> do you know what i mean we're gonna get into a rabbit yeah, hole if we keep talking about we this need to stop we need to stop very stupid so, <laughs> so you're saying um you don't think it's appropriate to study English in isolation. How, why, why do you think it's important not to do so? Well, generally, um, like the, discipline, uh, right, the disciplinary dialogue 
of any singular discipline. So like English literature in this example being in itself a discipline yeah. in academia, which has its own theories and its own ideas and its own way of approaching things. And the fact that it, it's text-based because it's literature, mm-hmm. the fact that it's English literature. So in my experience, you don't study literature in translation. And if you do, it would be like a specific module about translation, but mm-hmm. you know, that it's English implies that it's in the English language. Although that doesn't mean it has to be produced in a primarily English-speaking country. It kind of, you know, you're not necessarily studying authentically world contexts. Um, But also, you can get very pigeonholed into looking at things in a very certain way. And you sort of, you know, names will rattle around and you'll be like, oh, Judith Butler and... Um, Marx and Althusser and all these like big names in English lit theory and stuff Mm. and you might be specifically reading their stuff that relates to English criticism or you might be only reading writers works that are in fiction with like no just no well it lacks context and it can lack perspective and it can become too narrow Mm -hmm. is maybe what I'm trying to say to study English literature in isolation because in isolation implies that it's like in a vacuum yes and that it's to be isolated is to be alone and to be cut off from Mm. so it's quite um and it's quite an ignorant stance to take to study English literature in isolation it's quite ignorant to in like the wanky way like you know like the real world implications of literature and it's also um it's also ignorant towards like the circulation of literature yeah. and other languages as well. Because if you're just studying English literature as opposed to like literature, if you are studying literature, then you w- w- could study things in translation or you could study things in other languages if you have proficiency in other languages. Mm-hmm. Which also, you know, it's like saying all this, it's like, well, you do need specific context in which to study things. Like you do need to study English literature conscious of its specific context yeah. as literature produced in the English language perhaps in England America Canada Australia other English speaking countries and writers wherever they are from yeah you do need to have specific context but you also need to be aware of the context outside the context bubble do you know what I mean yeah so like you have the context you need to take in sort of as both a specific world. and a surrounding context yeah it's like you know at the same time that Charles Dickens was writing tale of two cities other things were happening in the world yeah and also like other forces that you would only study say in geography or say in like sociology were happening and if i was to just study a tale of two cities in english literature i would be studying it in a very ignorant manner Mm. which is devoid of um perhaps other things that would be equally important to talk about i think it's it's um the world doesn't stop the writers the world doesn't go on pause and I feel like it's I feel like because let's say a tale of two cities that is such a bad example I've never read it I don't know why I don't know why Dickens came to mind or that book I have not read it but let's keep going let's keep going with it I I feel tale of two cities any book it's Mm. an black and white on a page those aren't changing unless you're sort of punctuation revisions different editions but for the most part Mm -hmm. those words exist in the order they exist in and are not changing yeah because yeah but also like 
if you think about text and English literature as a material object, mm. and especially when you get to more historical things and like Shakespeare's folios, right. and the fact that all of Shakespeare's plays we kind of think of as existing in one version, but you've got to think of the idea that the ver- you need to be aware of the version that you're reading is an amalgamation of certain aspects of Shakespeare's folios yeah. and stuff. So even to counter to like um, counter what you've said, the material sort of quite quite black and white existence of text is actually more malleable than it often seems yeah especially for older literature more contemporary stuff less so because things often are circulating in their maybe first or second Mm. print but it's just a different cover but when you're sort of looking at canonical stuff like in English literature you would study well yeah like we've we studied like ancient Greek literature yeah which for example is in translation but it's sort of deemed English language, weirdly. Um, and also the that fact that, that we would study it and they wouldn't necessarily talk about the translator or like the adapter. And I'm like, well, we're not reading it in ancient Greek. No. Do you know what I mean? Tran- translation. There are, there's quite a few questions in um, the past papers about translation. Translation is very interesting. I mean, that translation isn't a black and white thing. It's not an... Yeah. It's not an apolitical thing. Someone's yeah. going in and making an active choice. Okay, I don't have... How how do I yeah, it's change like, this? It's, like it's, imp- it's fundamentally changing the text. It's impossible to be a passive translator because mm. you also can't directly translate things between languages. Exactly. Because, we, you know, there's so many isms in languages. Yeah. But then also that then is moving outside of the world of English literature and then that becomes more comparative literature as a discipline, which has a much more broader global focus yeah so if this question was about how appropriate is it to study comparative literature in isolation to that I would say as a discipline that kind of already has such a wide scope yeah that in studying it in isolation you do have an awareness of other things going on around you more so than in English literature Mm. and then if you think well we're talking about translation that is not only a textual question but that's a question about linguistics so then you actually are then becoming the question is that then becomes a question about English language and English li- linguistics or mm. linguistics period. Yeah. And like translation is also a big question in modern languages. So then actually already we've taken this question out of its own actual context of we're now actually talking about things that are not specifically English literature. Yeah. Which, How, let's, let's, def- yeah. what are the parameters of English literature? Because one reading over the past papers, yeah. there are so many like, like there's a question: Does is theatre a branch of English literature? Yeah. Should poetry be considered literature? Like it's. Right. I feel like I've never considered. Okay, what actually is English literature? I've studied it at school. Yeah. yeah. I'm about I mean, to go and study an English and creative writing degree. Period. What? What is English literature? How do we define the parameters of English literature? Well, I feel like maybe we should ask the Oxford English Dictionary on Google as well. Okay, let's go. As a backup. But I would say, well, literature, as opposed to like orature, which would be like spoken, literature is that which is written down, in my knowledge. I'm not okay. not sure what its like roots would be, but you know, the way it's used now is it's you, you read literature. Um, and even an audio book is a literature in a different form. It is no longer literature. It's like, do you know what mm. I mean? So I feel like literature is an act of reading. However, also then being knowledgeable of the fact that you, if you are reading Braille, then that's a tactile thing, but it's still material. And it's like, it's a tactile act. Yes. Reading. But even if it's also on like a digital form, like an iPad or like yeah. 
on a laptop or on a you know a weekend doll it's the, i don't know actually that then becomes a very weirdly sensory issue but like it's literature is like words on a material form it doesn't have to be paper because you can read on like a gravestone or you can read a sign which is on metal or would it, would you say a gravestone is english literature yes i've also written an essay on that oh wow well, well ish there's an amazing book called economy of the unlost by ann carson Anne Carson is probably my favorite working writer. Oh Anne Carson is phenomenal. Um, I could do an entire podcast on <laughs> Anne Carson. Love I love Anne Carson so much. Um, but she basically talks about, she compares um, these two writers, an ancient Greek writer and then a writer who was writing during and after the Holocaust. And wow. so they're obviously very separated by time and space and also language. Um, but she's talking about like the economy of writing and how the ancient Greek writer had his very specific economy of being able to write because he only had the space of a tombstone. And so we're talking about like um, like epitaphs and stuff. Oh, wow. And That's so like gorgeous. very specifically, the literature there is very, very defined by the material form on which it's printed because yeah. there's only so much rock on a tombstone. So the writing on a tombstone is English literature, yes. Wow. So let, going back to the definition of English yes. literature, Miss I can't find an Oxford Dictionary uh, definition. Of Mi- English literature? What, what about just the word literature? Because I feel like... Well, let, it- me, let me show you what I've... Let's do that. Let me show you what I've got so far. Okay. Yeah. The English literature, this is how Wikipedia defines it. Great, a very great, valid, professional source. Wikipedia. I actually quite enjoy... I think oh, Wikipedia is great. I love Wikipedia. So... English literature mm-hmm. is literature written in the English language yeah. from the United Kingdom, its crown dependencies and overseas, ter- overseas territories, the Republic of Ireland, the United States, and the countries of the former British Empire. Ew, disgusting. That is a hideously imperialist colonial, which is true, Yeah, but that really does sort of... That's just so horrid to hear. English literature, literature that literature is from the, England, yeah, in the, the English, English language, or English from Empire. countries that have been colonised by England. Yeah, great. Um, and it also says at the top, not to be confused with British literature. So it's a separate thing, apparently, according to them. Uh, the Cambridge... Separate from British literature. So it yeah. wouldn't include Welsh, Scottish... But it, wait. They, they've the, said... It was the Eng- Republic of Ireland. English literature is literature written in the English language from the United Kingdom, its crown dependencies, overseas territories, the Republic of Ireland, the United States, and the countries of the former British Empire. I don't know why it's not to be... Oh, because British literature would be specifically of Great Britain in isolation. Okay. And that would not include... So that's why it stipulated the Republic of Ireland as well. I was like, that was so weird. But no, it's because it means then England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. This is how um, the Cambridge Dictionary defines it. Mm-hmm. This is how they define literature. Yeah. Written artistic works, especially those with a high and lasting artistic value. Oh, okay. So they're talking about highbrow literature. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Oxford definition of, of literature. Great. Written works, especially those considered of superior or lasting artistic merit. So how are we defining English literature? Is it written we, work? We as in me and Cherry on the podcast. Yes. If, well, literature is written work, mm-hmm. is anything in writing and 
it could be of good or bad or no merit at all. But if it's written down, it is mm-hmm. by definition a piece of literature. It's a piece of writing. So English literature is that writing that is in the English language and has been specifically written influenced down. by England. I, I'm coming. I, I I'm do. coming back to that definition of English literature as including oh, from Crown dependencies, overseas territories, Republic of Ireland, United States, and the former British Empire. I'm like, okay, so things that have been. Is that citing anything? Like, is that is oh, that yeah. like underlined with anything? Because I feel like you again, Wikipedia's not the best source, but that is an interesting idea that it's that's very just if you like it's like that interview with um what's his face from Peaky Blinders where like the interviewer's like yeah. oh like you're two you're both two British actors and he it, goes no I'm Irish it's, it's Killian Murphy yeah Killian it? Murphy and he, and he's like no I'm Irish and then the interviewer like backtracks and is like well you're both from like you know like that era of northern Europe and then Killian Murphy's like no I'm Irish you know if mm. if you told James Joyce or like Seamus Heaney that they are that they are like well they're taught they're taught in english literature courses precisely but if you told them that they were that their work is english literature and not irish literature i feel like they would have many words to say (laughs) yes i feel like they would have several things to say about that so i don't um and also if you told say um i don't know avni doshi who wrote an incredible book called burnt sugar which is amazing who i believe still lives in india that her work is a piece of English literature as opposed to Indian literature in English. Again, I don't know. Again, I can't speak for her, but I think that's a very interesting yeah. thought because it's defined. Okay, that's interesting though. We're defining it by language and not geographic boundaries. Or we we want to define it by language and things in the English language. Mm. And then that Wikipedia source was saying that um, it's geographically defined in that yeah. what, what is and was once in quote-unquote English, so the empire, which is obviously, you know, somewhat problematic in and of itself. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines English literature more narrowly as the body of written works produced in the English language by inhabitants of the British Isles, including Ireland, from the 7th century to the present day. Oh, okay. So the seventh century—that's probably when they're identifying like the rise of what could be yeah. thought of as an Eng- as an English language. Yeah, I'm, I God. prefer I prefer that definition. That definition I can sort of agree with more. I think it's very ignorant to mm. stipulate that oh, Australian literature is English, is English lit- literature because it's in the English language, even though it's geographically and quite culturally specifically Australian. Mm as in written by an Australian writer or a writer identifying as Australian, whether they're in diaspora or in situ in Australia. Um, Because also that brings up the question of like diasporic writing. And, you know, I did a module about the Caribbean and we spoke about the diaspora because it's such a key part of studying the Caribbean. But, you know, their work is considered Caribbean literature, even if it was written in New York. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So that, but also Caribbean isn't a language. Caribbean is a group of islands which is very difficult to you know it's defined culturally yeah. and geographically as by the islands but then it's also very importantly a huge diasporic community so that sort of if you think about okay well in the example of Caribbean literature that is both geographically and socio-culturally defined yeah. and has no 
and is not to do with language at all because Caribbean literature could be in French, Spanish, English, Creole dialects. It could be in any number of languages. So it's not tied down to language, but English literature is language and geography, but also not apparently, according to Wikipedia. It's like, yeah, well, India's English. Cool. Love that we're still doing that. <laughs> that's such a great, that's such a great thing to say. Could could we call like sort of classic American works like of mice and men? Um, big up of mice and men. Big up of mice and Did men. Did you do that at school? I uh, so uh, no because by the time we got to GCSE, they said oh, you could. And this is interesting, actually. Yeah. By the time we got to GCSE, Michael Gove had changed the syllabus, so you could Michael only Gove. you could only study yeah. British texts. So in so Michael Gove is defining English literature as works made in England, but before that, you could have studied of mice and men at, at GCSE. I didn't know that Michael Gove did that because I studied the Handmaid's Tale. And A Streetcar Named Desire. At A-level. At A-level. Oh, just for GCSE? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Back, back on board. We studied of Mice and Men in year nine. Same. Because it by the no time we GCSE got to GCSE, text. they'd yeah. cut it. And yeah. actually, I didn't do of Mice and Men. I did Kill a Mockingbird. But we had... A, there was, right. there was, I, think, I think there was a bit of like a, oh God, they've cut this from the syllabus now. So let's make sure they get like one American novel in. Yeah. But could we define sort of the great American novels or great American writing... Yeah. Uh, a Streetcar Named Desire, of Love Mice and Men, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah. uh, uh, Catcher in the Rye. Mm. Could those be defined as English literature? Well, by language, yes, but they're, you know, they're completely ig- is ignorant of the fact that they are deeply American. Like, yeah. you couldn't say that On the Road by Jack Kerouac is a piece of English literature. Ooh, I, no. That's <laughs> just, I mean, like, some, you know, literature is written... I guess uh, just goes back to what we talked about, like the vacuum of English literature and being very disciplinary and very narrow and whatever. But like literature is produced specifically, but not in a vacuum. So I feel that's actually what I want to say is like, like Jack Kerouac's On the Road is specifically American, but is in the English language. Yeah. But also the English language in America is a different dialect in terms of spelling and in terms of the language that would be used, in terms of cadence, yeah. in terms of also like slam poetry. No, that's not what I mean. Who the the group of poets like Jack Kerouac and um, they all came together and they started like a new literary movement. It's not slam poetry. What's it? No, that's so beat, not beat. Next. Beat. Thank you. Beat the the beat. No, maybe uh, mm, yeah, the beat generation. I feel like what we're getting at is it is impossible to study something in isolation because yeah. the it's so hard to define the boundaries and if you do you're it's actually quite ignorant because I I feel like you can use that reasoning oh you should be studying only English literature and nothing else you can use that to really just take away like you can use that to discard anything that you don't consider good literature do you know what i mean like you can use it to be like i'm only going to study the canon and i'm only going to study these group of uh old male white maybe maybe we'll throw a jane Eyre in there but we're only going to study this group of renowned men english writers Mm. and that is going to be me defining what good literature is yeah I, i feel like it's if you think you can study anything in a vacuum, 
I, that, it, that is inappropriate. Yeah, that is inappropriate. Yeah. And it's ignorant. Mm, it is. I, in my first year, I really wanted to get out of um, a module. I really wanted to get out of a, I went to the first two classes of a comparative literature module. And then I didn't get into that module, but I did the first two classes anyway. Either way is I did like two weeks of comparative literature, which is very different to English literature. However, there's this guy called Eric Auerbach, pronunciation probably slightly different from that, but the general idea is that that's his name. Um, and he has this theory called mimesis. And very generally and non-specifically speaking, he talks about this difference between like highbrow literature and then like lowbrow literature okay. as two different forms and like having two different tropes and um and how my like good literature is that which molds highbrow tropes lowbrow tropes and becomes something in the middle so Ooh. like his again I did this ages ago so I can't quote him or think about him in too much detail but this is what I remember from memory like lowbrow comedies would probably have more like animals in them and would probably rely more on caricatures yeah and on like um archetypes and stock characters yeah and highbrow literature would be more tragic and more poetic mm, more and, social commentary type stuff yeah yeah a bit just a it just you know would just feel a bit grander um right and so his idea of literature which would be mimetic mimetic my either way spell mm-hmm. m-i-m-e-t-i-c uh would be that which is neither highbrow nor lowbrow but sort of actually evocative of real life in the middle and so, th- again, that's comparative literature, but it's still applicable to English literature in this context of, like, in sort of his idea, I guess, literature which we deem exclusively highbrow is not good literature. That's so interesting. Which is, all, but it's also, like, a lot of the stuff we've canonised was never supposed to be good literature. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, like if you th- think about someone like Shakespeare, again, I l- very recently wrote um, part of an essay on this, but, like, you know, Shakespeare's plays were performed to, like, people stood in shit. Yeah, like, and they'd throw shit. And they would be throwing stuff on stage. And, like, be shouting they at would them. be selling stuff. And they'll probably be, like, animals. And, you know, like, Shakespeare, who we now think of, like, you know, the, the grand, gr- the yeah, great Yeah, the great. And, again, we deem him highbrow yeah. in his writing. But realistically, when you think about it within the specific context within which it was originally written and performed, Yes, he was a white cis man awarded privileges because he would be writing for the court and the, you know, Elizabeth I mm-hmm. and James I yes. would come and watch his show. So, like, he was awarded a lot, lot of privileges and yeah. there were highbrow aspects to his work. I'm not saying that. However, his perform his work was performed for people stood in shit. Yes. So, like, it really wasn't that great, Mary. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think it's interesting how... Um, over time people who at one point would be considered lowbrow yeah, like of the people of the people for the masses yeah. are now gate kept and can sort of they are the great shakespeare yeah. and it's taught as such a high kind of in in that canon yeah. really but it's also just then like english literature isn't just the canon which is taught because like you know within my English literature we've mm-hmm. studied again I haven't done as much of of it as I would do if I was doing a pure BA yeah just for the fact that only half of my degree is in English but like 
I've studied a lot of big names, but then I've also written about people who are not that big or wouldn't be deemed canonical. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's not, there's also a very limited view and a lot of, like, this, a lot of academia of English literature, though it is still defined by the canon and that you will study Shakespeare at school. Yes. And the way that, like, the GCSE curriculum works, it's like, what? I studied at GCSE a Shakespeare. I did Romeo and Juliet. We did... I did um, Macbeth. I love Macbeth. I wish we did Macbeth. Anyway, hmm. you have to do a Shakespeare. You have to do um, poetry. Um, did you do Power and Conflict or did you We do did Power and Conflict. I did Power and Conflict. Yeah. Love and Relationships was at the girls' school in my town did Stop Love and it. Relationships. But we were a mixed schools and we did Power and Conflict. We got and, the, and the all-boys school, I think, also did Power and Conflict. Which I just think is, you know... The two genders. Love and relationship, power and conflict. <laughs> I do believe in binaries. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so, so you know, the way that it's taught at a young age is Shakespeare, poetry, but mm-hmm. also the poetry spans time. So it isn't, you yeah. know, what we did, oldie woldie, Ozymandias, Percy by Shelley. Yeah. That's I can, romantic. I can, you know what? I can recite that. Please don't. Pretty much. I, no, I met please. a from an antique no, she said two vast and trunkless like the stones down in the desert. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like you do that and then you do what we did, Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, but then you could also do like a Christmas carol and they do, things like that. It's, uh, it's uh, Shakespeare, poetry, Victorian, like Victorian 18th century yeah, text. 18th or 19th century. And then modern, modern uh, 20th century text. What was text. my modern text? Mine was Lord of the Flies. Oh yeah, so was mine. Oh wow. Yeah, love. Lord of the Flies is the reason why I love literature. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, wow. well, actually, that is a lie, but, like, in school, it's a reason why... Why you like the subject. Oh, I don't know, but, like, it's Miss Struthers, the previously aforementioned Miss Struthers, mm-hmm. the artist formerly known as Miss Struthers, <laughs> the incomparable Miss Struthers. The incomparable... She is really the reason why I'm studying English, but, like, her teaching us Lord of the Flies. Anyway, so my point, what I'm trying to say is, like, the way that it's taught at a young age has to be is sort of quote unquote has to be canonical in the sense that you have to teach the quote unquote important quote unquote significant texts yeah. to young people who after the age of 16 don't have to study English anymore yeah so like you kind of have have to have again blurry to teach the important texts and then but you now think like all the new texts that have been brought in to both the GCSE and the A-level curriculum, like Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other is now yes. a set text. I can't remember if it's GCSE or A-level, probably A-level. I think it's A-le- a bit, A-level. I feel, like, I feel like it's too long to be a GCSE text. Well, you say that. I did Great Expectations at GCSE. You're joking. We didn't We didn't get through it. We didn't read it all. Mo- I don't think anyone actually read all of it because it was truly just like, I don't have the time to get through this when I've got like 10 other subjects yeah. to, go, to go through. Anyway, tangent. But also thinking about then school, like at school, when you're studying English literature, you're not studying it in isolation because you're studying it amongst, because you're doing both English literature and English language. So yes. you're studying two different parts of the umbrella discipline of English. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't cross over though. No, they are, you're, se- you're they taught- are separate exams and they're taught separately, but you're still, you're, you are somewhat learning them in isolation, but you are learning them side by side. That's true. So like, I don't know how it worked with you, but we would, we would be taught English language and literature by the same teacher. Yeah. And we would just do it like, okay, this t- this this half term we're doing what um, Lord of the Flies and then the next half term we'll be doing English language, P 
paper yeah. two, which yeah. is the non-fiction one. Do you that's, know what I mean? That's how we did it as So well. it's like they were taught somewhat in isolation, but taught side by side. Yeah. And like, and also in the exams, you do have to, that AO3 context. Um, yeah, you do have to be aware of the the world in which they were. But even, the, I, but think that the, I think that is part what of you English get, literature though. Like yeah. the, the context of the literature is part of the study of it. So how can you learn it in isolation? Well, you are learning it in isolation because that is part of the discipline. So if you know what I mean, so like you are learning in isolation of English literature as mm-hmm. a discipline. Okay, maybe school is actually not the best example. Maybe I'll talk more about me at uni. Okay. Okay, I have a very, very good example of why it's very significant and very, in a, I, I don't want to call it inappropriate, but why it's not advisable or appropriate to study English literature in isolation. Okay, imagine. Um, this is January what like the maybe like the 24th of January this year something like that and I am in my first ever geography lecture at uni it was my Mm -hmm. first geography module I took um and I hadn't studied geography since GCSE geography when we were like measuring meanders and I'm doing an urban and cultural geography module which is very wanky it's very much like what does the city mean how is the city put together? <laughs> you know, how do we interact with and yeah. portray the city? It's so interesting. Um, loved it so much. But on our first week, we're talking about modernity, mm-hmm. which in geography has a very specific sort of, you can date it in geography a bit more. They would say modernity around like 1850. And Paris is the capital of modernity specifically for geography. Wow. And so that's how they would date it. And the idea of modernity, which is separate from modernism, but it does sort of harken in modernism. But if you think about modernity, okay, geography as a specific discipline in isolation would say 1850, really starting off in Paris. Um, and it's all to do with processes of industrialization, urbanization, right. infrastructure, speed, you know, trains, um, speed of communication, speed of transport, a lot to do with pace and speed. Okay. That's how geography would think about it. I'm then going to jump back to... Uh, like September of last year, so the beginning of my second year, and I was doing a Caribbean studies module. Caribbean studies is innately not a discipline or an area of study which is in isolation because to study the Caribbean is so broad because you're studying a geographic region because mm-hmm. it's so many different islands all with very separate histories. They speak different languages. Yeah. They have different cultures. They have different influences they have different patterns of migration yeah and all of this the existence of the caribbean is very much based in colonialism oh yeah because we you know christopher columbus arrived and the indigenous population died off so quickly so the only documented history of the caribbean is a colonial history which is very interesting anyway so they in the caribbean and in caribbean studies modernity is dated much earlier to the starting off of the um plantation system um okay. so we're talking more like probably in its height or when it really started to become a proper system and like the six like the, pro- the proper extractive systems it's like 16th 17th centuries okay which is much earlier than 1850 1850s yes. the 19th century so in caribbean studies modernity is treated as when the extractive system of the plantations the transatlantic slave trade, the um, reproduction of goods and the formation of the first modern societies. I can't remember. I think it's CLR James is the scholar who I quoted when I wrote wrote about this. But um, 
the Caribbean as like the first site of modernity, the quote unquote nascent site of modernity, so like the birthplace, nascent right. being like natal. Right. Um, and so in Caribbean studies, as a discipline studied in isolation in this one module, mm-hmm. modernity is dated much earlier to um, the start of the plantation system and first experienced as a state, like the state or experience of modernity was first experienced by enslaved people, people who were enslaved. So, which is very different to geography. So geography being a social science, Caribbean studies being a very intergeneric, interdisciplinary study. So Mm. mainly arts and humanities, but we read stuff about um, economics and geography and stuff as well. Then we fast forward to um, English literature as a discipline studied in isolation. Mm -hmm. And um, I did a module called Pre-Modern Race and Gender. So the indication of something being pre-modern, you kind of have to cite where the gap between pre-modern, early modern, and modern is. So like um, early modern, they kind of, you know, like Shakespeare was an early modern writer. Oh. Um, Early modern in that um, sort of linguistically as well. Okay. So that's also why it's a bit, it's very blurry in English, sort of when modernity starts. Again, they would they look at the Enlightenment in English literature as the point of sort of modernity starting yeah. um, in the Enlightenment period. And then after that, it's sort of like modernity kicks in with mm. like the Industrial Revolution is where they really think about in like modernity starting. So you get the period of Enlightenment, which um, a Caribbean studies scholar calls the Enlightenment. I think it's Peter Minshall. He calls it the Enlightenment. It's so great. Brilliant. It's a very great article. But yeah, the Enlightenment as, you know, linguistically to be enlightened, to become wiser, to be, to see the light, but that also being the same period of, you know, enslavement being the primary source of income for most countries at the head of an empire. Yeah. Um, and that being the site of modernity. But when it's taught to us, it's not taught as the experience of modernity starting in the Caribbean, actually where it's first experienced, it's like, the Industrial Revolution, which was supported economically in terms of global power systems by the extractive systems in the Caribbean and in the Americas. Yeah. We don't think about it at its root. We think about the product of modernity when it comes to English shores and we get the Industrial right. Revolution. So in English, we would cite a point of modernity as sort of processes of modernity starting during the Enlightenment period. I couldn't give you the exact dates. Sure. But like starting there, but really like Industrial Revolution. So very similarly to geography, they kind of would sit, cite it somewhere in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't, I A, wouldn't know or wouldn't probably have thought about the fact that, hey, why don't we think about, why don't we think about the global context of the Caribbean? Mm-hmm when we're talking about modernity in terms of actually citing it and finding it first. Yeah. And also specifically in a module which is about race and gender pre the point of modernity and the point of modernity being this sort of mass network of enslavement Mm -hmm. and enslaving people and mass extractive processes, extracting people from um, their homes and moving them, extracting product from the earth. Extraction is a very interesting thing to research. Anyway, rather than looking at it at the root of it, we sort of just see the product of it. Like we fetishize this idea of modernity right. in these whitewashed disciplines like English literature, 
and geography. So if so, if you were studying English literature, own, as it, you wouldn't be getting wouldn't that context know. or that and root I, cause. Exactly, and I also wouldn't know about the fact that this idea is supported in a discipline like geography, which is very different to English. Mm. It's a social science. It's not an arts and humanities subject. At university level, at like school, it's taught as a humanity. I wouldn't have been exposed to Caribbean studies. There are no Caribbean modules in the English literature program at King's College London which is like a prestigious university. It's not like top, top, but it's a prestigious institution. Yeah. And it's quite a highly regarded English department. There are no Caribbean studies modules at all in the English department. There's one in comparative literature called Caribbean drama, none in English, even though there's literature being produced in the English language in the Caribbean. Mm. So I wouldn't know any of that, you know, and if I was studying English literature in isolation, I would have a very whitewashed disciplinary view of modernity processes of modernity processes yeah. of modernization to be modern to be pre-modern they exist off the exploitation yeah like of... it's we just see it as the product of modernity yeah and the product being to quote marx like that commodity fetishization of the commodity of modernity being the wealth that and the power that started the industrial revolution in england france mm-hmm. germany these big colonial sites yeah and portugal and spain they have a very different history with it regardless we just see the industrial revolution as its own thing like when you study it at school we did we i knew what the industrial revolution was in like year five yeah do you know what i mean yeah and even then doing history i only did history till year nine at school again we did the industrial revolution again i didn't know I wasn't, there's no discussion even that that age of the industrial revolution didn't happen in isolation. Mm. As, yeah, we just like started building factories and like making trains. Like that's how it's taught, you know, think about India and thinking yes. about all the different products that we were getting from there. And like, you're thinking like products like sugar, tea, yeah. coffee, cloth, um, all these things that, you know, brought all of our gold. We didn't, we didn't marry, we didn't dig that up in what? Yorkshire no we weren't finding gold in the Bracken Beacons do you know what I mean like (laughs) we didn't that that gold wasn't ours and all of these different things and like you know the industrial revolution which you would probably mainly study in a subject like history or geography um uh you're aware of it in English because of what is like William Blake and Charles Dickens but you don't read Charles Dickens as a product of a society's of industrialization no. that was built upon an empire. God, you're so right. The Industrial Revolution yeah. mainly came up in my um, uh, education through English as sort of an AO3 context point. Yeah. And through... Women thralls in the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> and in... I think it must have come up in history as well, but I did the history of medicine. So we looked more oh. at sort of scientific advancements. But scientific advancement as well is based upon the fact that a lot of science was... Um, again, I can't, tell in, you the, I can't tell you the exact, but like enslaved people, people who were enslaved, yes. or formerly enslaved people rather, sorry... Should have been saying that the whole time. Formerly enslaved people at the time. At the time. To- at the time. So at the- formerly enslaved. Oh, is that the term? People who were form. Well, it's a it's a big dialogue. But I recently just did a module called "U.S. Slavery in the Literary Imagination." Okay. Uh, led by Dr. Christine Ocuth, who is amazing. She would say people who were formerly enslaved. So just because then grammatically you're putting people first, right? People 
who were formerly enslaved, no longer right. enslaved by law, you know. Um, so if you're saying enslaved people, they're not is that enslaved re- Is that anymore. referring as well to people, like, at the time, if they were enslaved, would you say formerly in- people who were formerly enslaved? Well, it's, again, it's context-dependent. Okay. But generally, if you can put people first, it's like you would, it's like saying disabled people, you would say people with disabilities. Or okay. people with, like, putting pe- putting the person first. Okay, so but person first language. That's a whole different whole ca- that's a whole of other beans. kettle of fish. But, like, yeah. generally speaking and describing someone, I've, yeah, like, just trying to put people first, people who were formerly enslaved. Okay, that's very If we're talking about it, like, now. So, like, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, n- another kettle of fish, but also the importance of the, the language of that. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah, blowing minds here on the exam. Blowing podcast. minds on the exam hall podcast. Yes, sorry, you were talking about history. Yeah, and well, the, history, well, the and indus- industrial re- revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, we were taught the history of medicine. Yeah. And it's only since leaving school that I learned really just like the sort of how much of medicine is rooted in exploitation and colonialism. Yeah. Because we, I mean, maybe it just wasn't... Because, I mean, it was a very uh, British-centric, Anglo-centric kind of... Or maybe European-centric. Eurocentric. Eurocentric. uh, Eurocentric course. But never once was it touched on. But then I if you want to think about I can't think one time it touched on it. And maybe I'm just No got spotty memory, but No, you're probably not. Like you're an A level curriculum in the UK. Um which has since been reformed again. Well it was GCSE, it was GCSE, so oh, even God, so even course, less in depth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but also again from my wonderful Caribbean studies module, run by Dr. Rosa Anduhar, who is also fucking incredible. Like I have to shout out to the best tutors I've had at uni. <laughs> have been those who have taught me things that were not deemed canonical essentially but Mm -hmm. um yeah like um there's an amazing book called the experiential caribbean the writer of which i cannot remember um but like it which talks about the experiential knowledge of like caribbean medicine being a lot more tied into um uh homeopathic remedies and spiritual remedies that wouldn't be deemed medicine or medical mm-hmm. or scientific these are all in quote like quotation marks very yeah. loosely used in a course like the history of medicine but that is a history of medicine that is you know just not deemed sort of worthy of study mm-hmm. but it's very interesting because you know anyway that's nothing to do with <laughs> but it, well it's just well that's the thing though it is to do with english literature because these are the power structures which are surrounding the production and circulation of texts yeah because you've, you th- you've also got to think, like, again, my wonderful module with Dr. Christine, like, the first texts by black people to start circulating on a very wide level were slave narratives. And there was this whole thing about the fact that black writers and black people who were formerly enslaved or um, had been emancipated formally or had uh, paid their way out of slavery or in, in indentured servitude, very different positions. But like they would write their um, slave narratives as a way of like getting white people to empathize with slaves 
or if uh, enslaved people rather yeah and like then this whole thing about sentimentality they had to be very sentimental and they had to be like right i am right this is written or most likely transcribed like you know related orally and then written down by um yeah you know like a progressive white abolitionist um who could write so probably a white abolitionist man um at the time um and like the whole point of like found quote unquote foundational black american literature in the english language yeah um was formerly enslaved people trying to like warrant the empathy of like white audiences to like help get you know help build up to emancipation it was like yeah. oh read this and like feel sorry for me so that you like you know stop doing this that was like the whole that's like the foundation of that's where like black literature starts in the english language which is obscene well it isn't obscene it's sort of historically like it's one of those things it's like historically of course but it's also like that's just so crazy yeah and to study it in isolation you probably wouldn't be studying that to think critically you need to be able to to look outside of what you're studying yeah but also english literature as just a textual thing the circulation and production and publication of texts is equally important to the actual reading of them like like how texts arrive in your lap yes and you know historically as well getting text published was very different yeah and like things like manuscripts how how you read an unpublished manuscript (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, sorry for listeners, that's an in-joke. That's an in-joke, sorry, sorry about that. So essentially you're saying you have, you cannot study English literature in isolation. Well, you can, but you're not going to be studying it particularly. You're not going to be studying it as critically or as... No. ...with as much knowledge. Okay, well, here's the thing. You can do it. It is deemed appropriate. I just don't think it's... I don't know, you you can study English literature in isolation. I just think it's a bit... You're getting a very limited view. I just think it's a bit shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. It's just ignorant. But, you know, I think generally the, a way of not studying English literature in isolation is to read things that are more outward-looking than you are and also, like, acknowledging that you know so little... And your experience mm. is so limited. And that's not a bad thing. That's just an inevitable thing. Yeah. Like, also, read nonfiction. I've only recently started reading more nonfiction. Same. Shout out to Shadia Hartman, is an incredible writer. Okay. Who molds sort of more fictional modes of writing with nonfictional modes of writing. Ooh. Just Shadia Hartman's amazing. Um, I've read recently. Um, What's it called? Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, which is about, um, uh, like, lives lives of black women and girls in America that are outside of the sort of canonical understanding of what their role should be. And it mashes, like, sociological research in that, like, she really researched into, um, like, Du Bois and all of his stuff about, like, demographics and all that kind of thing so it's very well researched but she like imagines and narrativizes people's lives outside of what is documented about them so it's like repersonalizing and re um 
putting lives back into humanizing history. Yeah. And she also does that with uh, Lose Your Mother, which is um, uh, she goes to Ghana and she retraces the slave routes and sort of it's a, it's a technically a memoir in terms of like it's her actually about, going along the yes it's, it's wow. actually narrated in terms of her experience of going back and walking along the slave routes and all the different uh things that she encounters there but so it's a memoir in that sense but it's also historically researched and it's you know something like that is so interesting and yeah and that's what but that's what literature should do in any language yeah that's, literature should be the like an imagine somewhere on a somewhere on the sort of um, somewhere on the what was it called? In, in, in like the scope of imagined and real, somewhere within that universe of how it, of something being imagined and real, um, placed within a specific context, whether historical, present, imagined, otherwise, future, whatever, and it's imagining people's lives, and that's what good literature should do. It's like in like you know expose you and um to people's lives that you otherwise wouldn't be able to imagine or encounter that's what it should be mm. and like so in that sense you sh- could you know study good in good english literature in isolation if it's actually well researched well you know like something like like those shadia hartman books i can read those in isolation and get a good narrative i can get good historical information I'm getting good social research. I'm getting good, um, good lit- literature, literary merit. I mean, they're fucking amazing books. But like something like that, that you could read in isolation and you get so much information from it. That mm. yes, it doesn't, it, yes, it's not the only thing you should read. You should then re- read wider and read yeah. more. But something like that is more appropriate to read in isolation in that it is so informative and it's got so much merit in so many different areas but then also that is not solely fiction that's imagined that's imagined non-fiction yeah so not like speculative fiction like the handmaid's tale Mm. which is all based on truth and everything everything in the handmaid's tale happened right there's a lot together there's a lot of um debate and discourse about the handmaid's tale specifically because what a lot of people have pointed out is margaret atwood has taken Margaret Atwood very famously uh, used real things that have happened throughout human history. And in the Bible. And in the Bible. Which, which is the bit that I was like, work. Um, to uh, inspire the world of The Handmaid's Tale, Gilead. But there's been, a lot of people have pointed out, very rightly, well, a lot of the events you took from were specifically against non-white women. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you've sort of taken them out of that context and put them in this new American context and completely isolated them from, from the, the, global the, the actual thing that happened. But, th- that, but then that's an example of where, as a piece of literature, fucking fantastic novel. The yes. Hamilton is so good. Um, if you study it in isolation, but then if you, you don't s- get that. Precisely. And it's also something like Alice Walker, who wrote The Colour Purple, was quite infamously quite anti-Semitic. Right, and you you wouldn't I, from what I remember you don't get a sense of her being anti-Semitic within the text of the Color Purple, but that's something wider that you can't you know just be like Alice Walker is a fantastic writer and the Color Purple is an incredible piece of literature that I quite formatively read in the summer between year nine and ten I was like fourteen 
when I read the color purple. I was like, was I? I was like thirteen or fourteen when I read wow. the color purple. This very is- formative. But but anyway, like you just wouldn't. You need to have wider. But that's also like that's not academically. Like I'm not studying. No. I, again, I didn't read the color purple for academic reasons, and I didn't study it ever. But you just also never take anything completely in isolation. Mm, like you, I suppose the question is, as Margaret Atwood said, study. context is everything. No, yeah. context is all. Something like that. It's, it's in The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. There's a quote which is like, context is all or context is everything. I think it's context is all. Yeah, context is all. Margaret Atwood said it, period. Preach, Margaret. Exactly. Maggie. Mags. Ooh. Marge. Ooh. Ooh. Well, Sam, I am going to say pencils down. Sam, could you give me your thesis statement to the question, how appropriate is it to study English literature in isolation? I believe that the study of any academic discipline within isolation is to study it within a degree of ignorance. That's a really good thesis statement, short and snappy. Yeah, I was wow. like, I could, I could keep talking, but like, I thought like that is what, what my brain's kept yeah. circling back to is that it's, you know. Gorgeous. Well, Sam, Sam Smith. Yeah. Samantha Smith, yeah. the artist formerly known as. Mm. Here at the exam hall, we mm. have reviewed your application. Thank you. We have given it careful consideration. And I am delighted to welcome you into the hallowed halls of the alumni of the exam hall podcast. Welcome. Thank you. You Acceptance. Congratulations. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Now, All Souls College only allows up to two people in every year. Mm-hmm. One year, no one got in. So very exclusive. Um, And if you're one of those two people to get in, you are given seven years of funding to complete any research project of your choice. You get pretty much utter freedom in what you actually do. You are given board, a place to live. You're given a salary. You are able to study any subject of your choice at Oxford. And you are given contacts with leading professionals in your area of study or your discipline. So if you had seven years, kind of free of all financial burden, free of a lot of the barriers that um, kind of currently exist in education, what would you do with your time? Seven years is a long time to study anything. Yeah. Like the reason I did liberal arts is the fact that I would only have to study one thing for up to a semester. So like three months. And then I could very swiftly move on to something completely different. So I feel like inevitably I would end up doing a number of things in seven years. I feel like I would probably be a bit wanky with what I deemed research and just put on some shows. And yeah. Put on some plays and deem them research projects. Yeah. I would definitely do that. But, um, Rinse them for everything they're worth. Absolutely. Also, Oxford has great facilities for drama. Although That's they do, so true. although they, they do not have a drama course, which is why I didn't want to go or even apply to Oxford or Cambridge. Neither yeah. of them have drama courses. Anyway, I would study or research rather into modes of like queerness and ho- writing homosexuality and queerness into theatre. But in the sense of one of the most interesting things I've read about whilst at uni is a book called Communists, Cowboys and Queers, Politics of Masculinity in the Theatre of Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller. The title is something like that. 
I think Communist Cowboys and Queers is such a great title. Yeah. Anyway, and it was so interesting. Um, there's all these different modes of exploring how Tennessee Williams was like an openly, secretively gay writer or queer writer, rather. Openly cl- closeted. Oh, oh, yeah. The open secret, as E. Kosovsky yeah. Sedgwick would call it. The open yeah. secret of homosexuality. Um, and like the way that that informs his mode of writing. And I would want to find that elsewhere and like really delve into it. And like, um, there's a whole anthology of works called Shakespeare. And there's a different chapter on everything that Shakespeare's ever written and a queer reading of it. Um, mm. So there's an amazing one, which I used in an essay recently called Milk by Heather Love, which is about Lady Macbeth being an and ambition mm. as inherently queer in Macbeth. And their ambition is um, lapsing heteronormative time because um, they don't have kids and they defy sort of a heteronormatively linear progression, which is then inherently queer. Yeah. Anyway, but like, yeah, there's that whole anthology and like loads of different queer readings into Shakespeare's sonnets and plays. Um, and I feel like that's quite interesting. And I guess I would use the money to do practical research into staging or um, interrogating or staging interventions into these plays of um, addressing or exploring or um, sort of not doing like a queer version, but like really, really interrogating the queer mode of theatricality inherent Mm. in a lot of writers like Oscar Wilde as well yeah like Oscar Wilde Tennessee Williams um various others that I at this point do not know about but that would take potentially up to and including seven years yeah and they're also both just like you know they're all white men white cis men so I would also want to look outside of that because the limited research that I've done in it so far was that book on Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller who were two cis you know like cis white men ostensibly heterosexual but you know evidently not um yeah but yeah so they're they're out there somewhere if you had these seven years is there anything that is currently a barrier in your studies or in the past has been a barrier in your studies um that you feel like wouldn't be a barrier anymore or you'd be able to um get around mental health for sure and also that like time bar like that time frame of seven years is so much nicer. Yeah. Like um yeah, like I took a year out before I started uni. Um I yeah, you know, shock horror to all my friends who have listening to the podcast and have made it this far. Um I want to take another year out <laughs> because <laughs> it's bad and it's only got worse. Um uh but also like the fact that I've like I have four essays which I've deferred to August from my second year of study. So when I say I finished my second year, I'm blatantly lying. I have four projects which I have not submitted and I would still have to do in August, which I would have theoretically started writing more recently if I had not had glandular fever and been, you know, all that. Anyway, so like due to mental health, I've had to defer these projects. Um, And then due to mental health, I now... I'm not really in a position to now be writing them for August, but so it's just one of those things of like the, the time constraint is so huge yeah. and it's like, it doesn't let you have a down period. It's quite relentless. Um, and it's quite, um, which is, which is also what you sign up for though. So I was fully aware 
of what I was going to get myself in for. But it's very easy to be fully aware. And then it's also, then you only really can act on that awareness once you've got the lived experience of actually doing it. Yeah. But I put it within seven years. And if it was like seven quite autonomous years as well, of being able to like set my own deadlines and... I think that's something that really interests me about All Souls is there's, um, from an outside perspective, it seems to me there's, it's the, it's the freedom of being able to study autonomously, but still have the full backing of an institution and still have all those resources that an institution like a university gives you. Yeah. And an institution like Oxford as well. Yeah. Because they've got that good, good money. That good, good money, that good, good name. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Sam, thank you very, very much for being here today. Thank you very much for being a guest. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. I've always wanted to be on a podcast. It, it, there is a certain sense of power having yeah. a microphone on and headphones. Yeah. And like, I, I did have that, like, that very our generational thing of like, I'm interesting. I should start a podcast. And then I just started writing a play instead. But like, do you know what I mean? Like, I've always <laughs> wanted to be. I just love the idea of, yeah. L- let's do it again. Let's do it. We should do this again sometime. Yeah, like, yeah, like, do you come here often? Like, I just feel like I'd love to see you here again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, thank you very much for being here today. Yeah, no, thank, you, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Before I say goodbye, is there anything like to plug? Any anything parting, to plug? An, any parting words of wisdom you'd um, like to leave us with? Where can the people find you? The people can find me. <laughs> um, our voracious listeners or really your voracious listeners rather hey this is a community well yes um but it is your <laughs> podcast um i listen this is a <laughs> diplomatic democratic yes. yep um socialist. community socialist commune and i'm just commune. you know i'm just Listen, I'll do all the managing, but, you know, I'm not actually the leader. <laughs> but, yeah, okay, no, the people can find me on Instagram at two green eggs and Sam, spelt all with letters, there's no numbers there, but two green eggs and Sam. And I'm actually doing quite a bit at the minute. I'm about to put on a play at uni in the toilets, which will be advertised on my Instagram. We haven't started selling tickets yet, but that's whatever. I'm assistant directing a show at the Guildford Fringe. If anyone's yes. like South London or even further south, or Surrey, ideally. Um, yes. A wonderful show called While the World Goes Under, directed by Anya Anderson-Birch and written by Rosie Pierce, um, with a wonderful cast, Ellie Wilson and Charlotte Kindred. I should say that the play I'm doing in the toilets is with Danielle James, who's a fantastic actress and Drag performer as well, drag artist, mm-hmm. and musician, amongst other things. Anyway, like it, with, it's um, the toilet players uh, overflow, overflow by, by Travis, Travis Alabanza. Yes, yeah. um, yes, actually, I can see that. If you know, if you want to stay updated, um, the play Guildford Fringe is called While the World Goes Under. Tickets are on sale for that through the Guildford Fringe. It's on at the Star Pub or maybe the Star Inn and Pub or Pub and Inn, something like that. But yeah, come watch that; it's amazing. And then I'm also about to start choreographing a piece inspired by the Ovid's um, story of Echo and Narcissus for an event that uh, May is planning, which isn't on sale or anything yet. But, you know, follow me on Instagram and, like, keep updated for that. Um, And, you know, I'll be about. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very, very much for being here. You've been an amazing guest. Thank you. You've been, like, a, I'd say, like, a fine host. Like, you're not quite Simon Stevens, but... (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha!
Second episode in a row that the Simon Stevens uh, role really? for writing podcast has come up. I love that. Really? Like, anyway, sorry, we need to finish the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for being here. Get lost. Bye. Bye. Goodbye now. Goodbye now. Oh, goodbye now. Goodbye oh, goodbye now. now. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> oh, um, now. what's that wonderful stage direction in The Winter's Tale? Um, exit I, I, exit, exit stage left, pursued by a bear or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Exit pursued by bear. Perfect. That's what we're doing. Oh. <sighs> oh. Oh, you've just made my bear impression sound like absolute shit. I could do a good zombie as well. Thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of The Exam Hall. If you've listened to today's episode and you thought, I want to give that a try, I want to be a guest, come on down, come be a guest. If you're interested, you can click the link in the description, which will take you to an expression of interest form. Or you could message me on one of our social medias. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Exam Hall Pod. Get in contact there or give us a follow if you want to get any updates on the podcast and on the episodes and maybe some exclusive behind the scenes content. Ooh. If you want to see what I, Cherry Eckle, have been up to, you can follow me at Cherry The Eckle on Instagram and twitter and uh, cherry eckle on youtube i want to give a shout out to boundless theater whose support has made this podcast possible i want to give a shout out to you for listening thank you very much for doing that it's very nice we'll be back uh, in two weeks with another episode i hope wherever you are whoever you are you are having a lovely day and i hope that day continues to stay lovely and turns into a lovely week lovely year and a lovely life See you soon.